Amen. Hallelujah. What a Savior, right? Man, what a, what a song that is. And I love that last verse that talks about when He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring. I hope you're part of that group, right? Uh, that's, that's my great desire for you, is that you are part of that group, that when Jesus returns, He brings His ransomed home, and you can be part of that group by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew. This song we'll sing. The song that we're singing now, right? The song that we're singing now, we will sing then and we will sing it for all of eternity, right? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Man, I hope you can look forward to that day and say that. I hope that you can look forward to that day with confidence and say, on that day, I will say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Because the reality is that can only happen for His ransom. The reality is only His people can look forward to that day with confidence. And if you are uncertain of where you stand with Him today, my prayer is that you will know, (laughs) that you will run to Him, that you will call out to Him, that you will draw near to Him as He is drawing near to you, and that your life will be forever changed so that you can say with confidence on that day, Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? Do you have your Bibles this morning? Good. I have mine too, and we will open to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Last week we saw Paul speak to the church about what to do with the sinner who had repented as a result of the faithful and loving discipline uh, from the church in his life. Paul says in no uncertain terms that for the good of that man, uh, for the good of the church, for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God, that the church is to forgive this repented sinner, this repenting sinner. They are to forgive him, they are to comfort him, they are to restore him and bring him back. I told you uh, that Paul doesn't just say this from a distance, he doesn't just give this command to the church. No, he says this as the one who was primarily offended, as the one who was primarily sinned against. He says, I have forgiven him. And if I can forgive him, certainly you can forgive him. And if I uh, affirm his reconciliation to the church, then you should be reconciled to him as a church. Paul is a man who is living by example. By way of application, we talked about the whole process of dealing with tension uh, in a relationship, any kind of relationship, whether it's a church relationship or an employment relationship or a marriage relationship. We talked about how to deal with tension in those relationships that is a direct result of someone's sin, of someone's specific sin. And we outlined five big ideas, right? Five big ideas where we embrace and are obedient to both sides of the discipline coin, the confrontation and discipline side of the coin, and the forgiveness and restoration side of the coin. We need to be careful that we don't neglect one for the sake of the other. We talked about making a decision ahead of time, that we will love people enough to confront them in their sin, we will love people enough uh, to say hard things, we will love people enough to call for repentance, and we will love people enough when repentance has happened to restore and comfort and forgive them. We need to make a decision first. Then there needs to be confession where the sin is articulated and admitted and owned. There needs to be repentance where sin is turned away from with action, observable action, walking away from their sin. Then there needs to be forgiveness. Forgiveness that flows from the ones who are offended. And that forgiveness also needs to be more than just words. It needs to be observable action as well. And then we talked about reconnection. That there needs to be some uh, restoration of the relationship. Some reuniting of the bond uh, that was broken. And you know, last week, uh, as as I thought about how we talked about this as I preached, um, I, I talked about it mainly from the side of being the one who was offended. 
being, being the church who has been offended or the individual who has been offended or sinned against. And we talked a lot of the application from that perspective. And then I realized that more often than not, I'm not the one who's been offended. Uh, I'm not the one who's been sinned against. I'm the one who offends. And I'm the one who sins against someone. And so maybe today I need to remind you uh, and myself of that side of the application, that I need to be busy in confession. And I need to be busy in repentance. And I need to be humble enough to receive forgiveness when it is offered and restored relationship when it is offered. We need to be careful not to say that we are only on one side of that equation all the time. We are uh, often on both sides of that equation. And all of this that we talked about is a parallel with the gospel. That if we have been warned, if we have been forgiven, if we have been restored to God in this vertical relationship, then we need to be a people who warns and forgives and restores in our horizontal relationships. That our relationship with God through Jesus Christ impacts our relationships with each other. And we must never forget that. This week, we're going to continue to see Paul as he engages the accusations against him that are coming from the troublemakers. Uh, Even though this main one has been disciplined and has repented and is being restored, there are still people on the outside that are constantly attacking Paul, constantly accusing him uh, of not being a genuine apostle, of not being a legitimate preacher of the gospel. Uh, They will do this in a variety of ways, and one of the ways that they pick on in Corinth is they say Paul suffers a lot. Paul is constantly suffering. It's constantly going bad for Paul. And that's true, right? You you can't read his writings. You can't read the book of Acts and not see that Paul is constantly in trouble. And they will say that because he's suffering so much, that must mean that he doesn't have the favor of God. That if Paul was really so close to God, if Paul really had so much favor from God, he wouldn't deal with so much trouble. And what Paul is going to do today in particular is he's going to say, no, no, the, the suffering... The suffering that I endure, the suffering that I experience, the persecutions that I experience actually are affirmations, not denials, but affirmations of my apostleship. He says, the, the path that I'm walking looks like the path that my Savior walked. The path that I'm walking looks like the path that the Lord Jesus walked. He was persecuted. He was reviled. He was in constant tribulation. And Paul says, I'm close with him, and that's why I'm persecuted. And so it's not a denial of his apostleship. It's actually an affirmation of his apostleship. So some good stuff today. Uh, There is one little part of the text today that is very difficult, and I'm not going to lie to you about that. Um, It is just really tough. When he talks about this, when he talks about Christ leading us in triumph, uh, man, the the scholars are divided in two very clear camps. uh, And both of them make a great argument for, for their for their uh, position, and uh, we'll talk about that. And I think at the end of the day, what I came to is that at the end of the day, no matter which camp you decide to camp in, uh, no matter which one you decide to line up with, the end result is the same. The application, the implications for our lives today are the same. And so in a sense, it's not really a big deal, but it is pretty confusing. So check it out in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. We'll get through verse 17 today. It says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma of death to death. To another, aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? 
For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much uh, for your word today. God, thank you that you meet with us like this. As we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, you meet with us, you move in us, you speak to us, you encourage us, you rebuke us, you discipline us, you restore us. God, I thank you for these times when we can gather together as a family in the presence of our Father. And you are here, and that's incredible. And we don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to just assume that you are always here. We want to be in awe and wonder and amazement that you would meet with us, and you do. And God, I thank you that you're here, and I pray that you'll speak to us now through your word, that you will teach us the things you would have us to hear, that as Aaron prayed a minute ago, you will do what we cannot do and give us ears to hear, that you will give us spiritual eyes to see, that our hearts will be open to the word. God, all of those things we cannot do to ourselves. We need you to do that to us, to make us ready to receive. And so we invite you to do that. And we pray that the end result will be radical life change, radical obedience from us to you, and glory to your name in Harrisburg and around the world, that your name would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there are kind of um, three parts of the text today. One is this business of Paul's travel itinerary again. Again, he goes back to why he's moving from this place to that place and defending that once again to the church at Corinth as if he hasn't gone far enough in that already. Uh, the next part will be this business of the, uh, the parade of triumph, and that's where it's really difficult. And then we'll talk about smells uh, and, and, and how Paul uses this image of an aroma uh, to speak about the spread of the gospel and the intrusiveness of the gospel and the provocative nature of the gospel that it elicits from us a response. The part about smells is, 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 is good and it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about skunks a little bit. Um, but, but before we get there, we need to talk about Paul's travel arrangements. In verses 12 and 13, he gets into the details of his itinerary for the sake of the Corinthians. Um, it says in verse 12 that he came to Troas for the gospel of Christ. And when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave from them, I went on to Macedonia. What Paul doesn't say here is that he's clearly very concerned about the church at Corinth in the midst of all this. And we can gather from some other passages of scripture that Paul had sent Titus to Corinth maybe even sent him with that painful letter that he's talking about a lot in 2 Corinthians, maybe even sent that letter by the hand of Titus, and Titus had gone to the church at Corinth to see how things were going, and Paul had said to Titus, hey Titus, meet me in Troas. Meet me in Troas, and when we get to Troas and we get together, you can tell me how things are going in the church at Corinth. And so Paul travels to Troas to preach the gospel. He says that clearly, right? That he went to preach the gospel. And he also says clearly that when he got there, God opened a door for the ministry. And Paul uses that language a couple of times in his writings. And usually it is evidence of what we would call uh, typically revival, uh, maybe a better, maybe a better 
descriptor of it would be awakening, uh, where Paul goes to a town and the Holy Spirit shows up, he preaches the gospel, and people are being converted. Lives are being changed. The church is being planted and nourished and grown. And he says that happens in Troas. And usually, he's totally excited about that. Usually, an open door for service uh, happens, and Paul is just thrilled, and he will drop everything and invest in that place and just go crazy in that place because the Holy Spirit's moving. And that's, what hap- that's what's happening in Troas. That's what's happening there. And he says, but I had no rest for my spirit. He says, all of this good stuff is happening. I'm going to Troas. I'm going there essentially to meet Titus to find out about the church at Corinth. But I'm also going to preach the gospel. And that'll be one little bit of application in a minute. That he's, that he's preaching the gospel. Doors are open. But he's got no rest in his spirit. Because when he gets to Troas, Titus is not there. And there are a lot of people that would say that the lack of rest in Paul's spirit is because he's worried about Titus. Because he's concerned about why Titus has been delayed. But I don't think that's the case at all. At least I don't think that's the primary reason why he is upset when he's in Troas. Because when he is ultimately comforted, it's not because Titus is okay. It's because he hears that the church at Corinth is doing some good things. It's because he hears that they have heard and disciplined and repented and are restoring this man who was so much trouble. You see, I think Paul has no rest in his spirit because he is so concerned about the church at Corinth, which communicates very clearly his great love for them. And it also answers the question about his travel itinerary. He says, even when my plans change, they change because I care so much about you. You see, what Paul did when he got to Troas and Titus wasn't there and he got so worked up about worrying about the church at Corinth is he left Troas. He left Troas and traveled on to Macedonia. He left the awakening. He left the revival because he's so concerned about the church at Corinth. And the church that has given him nothing but trouble, the church that has given him nothing but bad news all the time, he is so concerned about them that he's willing to leave this very fruitful ministry to go and check on them. Does Paul love the church at Corinth? Absolutely he loves them. He is worried about them. He stays up at night worrying about them. And he wants to know what's going on. And so, in verses 12 and 13, he communicates clearly his love for them. He also communicates clearly that he was preaching everywhere he went. Everywhere Paul was going, he was preaching the gospel. I believe that his primary reason for going to Troas, in particular, was to meet Titus there. That's why he went. And as he was going to Troas, and as he was going to meet Titus, he was preaching the gospel. And what I want you to hear right off the bat today is that that's what obedience to the Great Commission looks like. That's what obedience to the Great Commission looks like. The Great Commission is not necessarily go to Haiti and preach the gospel. Go to China and preach the gospel. Go to the bonfire and preach the gospel. Go on a prayer walk and preach the gospel. Go to some event or some destination and preach the gospel. The Great Commission looks more like this. As you're going anywhere, preach the gospel. In all the things that you're doing and as you are going along in life, if you're going to Troas to meet Titus, preach the gospel. If you're going to work tomorrow, preach the gospel. If you're going to school tomorrow, as you are doing these things, you are preaching the gospel. And Paul was living that out. He went to Troas to meet Titus, and he preached the gospel while he was there, and there was an awakening, and I believe a church was planted and began to grow. I want you to hear clearly that Paul was preaching everywhere, even as he was going, and we should be preaching just like that. 
That's what obedience to the Great Commission looks like. It is not just participating in an event. It is a lifestyle of obedience to preach the gospel everywhere you go and make disciples everywhere you go and baptize everywhere you go. Does that make sense? The other thing I want you to see in verses 12 to 13 is that Paul really loved the church at Corinth. He was always thinking about them. They were a burden on his mind, and he had great love for them, partly because of the people there and partly because of the strategic location of Corinth to, to spread the gospel out into the world. So in verses 12 and 13, he defends, once again, his travel itinerary and affirms his love for them. In verse 14, we get to the difficult part of the text. Verse 14 says this, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. There are really two ways to look at this verse in the image that Paul conjures up. The end result, like I told you before, is ultimately the same, but the implications may be a little bit different. To understand this stuff, you need to understand the parade itself, the parade of triumph itself. And the closest parallel that we've got today is when the Cardinals win the World Series or somebody wins the Stanley Cup or something great happens in sports and they come back to their hometown and what happens? Ticker tape parade, right? Ticker tape parade where they hold the trophy up in triumph and everybody gathers in the streets to cheer on the victors. That is as close as we've got uh, to this parade of triumph. In ancient times, in Paul's day, the parade of triumph would look something like this. Uh, 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 A country... A nation, a state, would have a great conquest in in a military battle. They would win a great victory and kill lots of the enemy and take their spoils and their riches. And then they would come back to the capital city of their country. And all of their citizens would gather on the streets. And out in front of this parade would be the conquering general on a big chariot, a big chariot that was ordained with gold and all kinds of ornaments. I read lots about this, that sometimes they would, they would dye his face red to remind them of Jupiter, the god of war, and all of this stuff. But it was, it was great pomp. He would wear a, uh, purple, a purple robe, and he was the man. All right, That's what I want you to get. He was the man. The leader of the army was out in front in victory, everybody cheering him on. And then behind him would have been some priests, some priests that were burning incense, burning incense all around the town, and that incense was wafting up as a sacrifice to these gods and goddesses. These are not godly people who are doing this, you get me, right? These are pagans that are doing this. And, uh, and then behind the priests would be the soldiers, the conquering soldiers, not the general, but the general's troops. And they would be behind, and they would be with their arms up, carrying each other on their shoulders. They would have gold and silver and, and silk and pearls and all the stuff that they took from the people they conquered, all of the spoils of war. They would be showing them off and throwing them out and, and sharing it with all the people. And it would just be a great event. And then behind the soldiers come the prisoners. Right Behind those soldiers come the prisoners of war, those who had been conquered. And at the front of that group would have been the common citizens or the soldiers, and they would be brought in. And then the very last people in the line were the conquered leaders, the generals of the opposing army who had been conquered. And they would be marched through the streets and people would hurl insults at them and they would mock them and they would speak of their great victory over them. And then this parade would ultimately end at a coliseum or some kind of amphitheater or some kind of gathering place. And those men at the very end of the line, more often than not, would be slaughtered in front of everyone. As a sacrifice to these pagan gods, as the ultimate statement of conquer and victory over them, these men would be slaughtered. Okay? You get the picture? 
We don't have anything that relates to that, right? When, when the Yankees come to town after winning the World Series, right, they don't, they don't bring the other team and kill them at Yankee Stadium. It doesn't work like that. They don't mock the other team. They just celebrate their victory. But here there was a great mocking of the ones who were going to suffer, okay? So there are two ways to look at this. When Paul says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, one way to look at this is very positive. It's a very positive way to look at it. Paul is saying, in the midst of all of my trouble, in the midst of all of my suffering and all of my persecution, Christ leads me in triumph. In other words, he says, Christ is at the head of this parade, and I am right behind him as one of his conquering soldiers. I am one, one of those behind him who is claiming the victory and the glory and the splendor and the spoils of war that Christ leads us in triumph, and we share in the triumph, all right? You see that? That's encouraging for a guy like Paul, right? That's encouraging for a church like like Corinth, who is struggling so much. And so there are some that would say Paul means this as a claim of his own victory, in a sense, but that victory is tied to Christ because he's leading in the triumph. But there's another way to look at this, which may be the more accurate, more faithful way to look at it. It may not be that Paul is saying that he's near the front of the line as a conqueror. It may be that Paul is saying he's actually at the back of the line as one who has been conquered. And I think this makes a lot of sense. In the context of 2 Corinthians, I think it makes a lot of sense. And in the context of Paul's own life, it makes a lot of sense. Because who was he before he became Paul? Who was he before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus? Yeah, he was Saul. He was the general of the opposing army, right? He was the most zealous persecutor of the church, Right? He was the one leading the way in destroying the church. And he knows that about himself. And he never forgets that about himself. And he is very honest with everyone about who he was. Right, And so it may be that Paul says, I'm not a victor in all of this. Christ is the victor and he has conquered me. And my suffering... Right, Because those guys at the end were led ultimately to their death, mocked and insulted and persecuted as they made their way through that parade and ultimately ended up dying. He says that that's me. That's me. That's the road I'm on. I'm not on a road of victory. I'm not on a road of, 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 of rejoicing and accolades. He's honest. He says, I'm on the road to suffering, and this suffering's only going to lead to my death. He's honest with the Corinthians about it three or four times. He says, I die all the time. I die every day. I wanted to die, right? He talks about this all the time, and so maybe he sees himself at the very end of that parade, suffering, suffering, suffering all the way to his death. Why? Because the death of those who have been conquered is glory to the conqueror, right? The general at the front of the line is glorified in the death and suffering of the generals in the back of the line. And Paul says, my life is all about glorifying Christ. And he says, even in my suffering, this is what I want you to get, even through my suffering, even though it will ultimately end in my death for the sake of Christ, even in all of that, Christ is glorified. That that's how he sees his suffering, right? He doesn't see his suffering as injustice. He doesn't see his suffering as in and of itself victory. He sees it leading to the ultimate victory. And the triumph that Paul will receive happens through suffering. Does this make sense to you guys? So whether you see Paul at the front of the line with Christ, in glory, sharing in the glory of Christ, or whether you see Paul in the back of the line, suffering and dying 
for the sake of the glory of Christ. The bottom line is, no matter which way you slice it, you see that it is not Paul who is victorious. It is always Christ. It is not Paul who is honored. Ultimately, it is always Christ. It may be that he means a little bit of both of these things. That he's at the end of the line, and through his death, Christ will be glorified. And ultimately, he sees that as his victory, right? That he is victorious because Christ is ultimately victorious. But the bottom line is, whichever way he sees it, it is encouraging to him to see it this way. He says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Thanks be to God. Whether I'm at the back of the line or the front of the line, thanks be to God because he leads us in triumph in Christ. And all that matters is that Christ be glorified. And if it takes my suffering and death for Christ to be glorified, let it be. If it takes my victory, let it be. So long as Christ is glorified, Paul says that's what he lives for, right? Then in verses 14b and following, he talks about these aromas. Part of the parade of triumph, like I talked to you about a minute ago, is that the priests were carrying incense, and that incense was going up. It would linger for a long time. It would stretch out from the place it was and reach other places where... People could not see the parade, but they could smell the parade, if that makes any sense. Look what he says in verse 14b. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. First thing I want you to know about smells is they spread, right? They spread and they cannot be contained. You know that, right? Shall I give you examples? <laughs> Not necessary, right? I've been in my car several times lately, smell something and say, who just took their shoes off? Right? There are a lot of people in my car, and you can tell when one of them takes their shoes off. <laughs> she needs some new shoes. <laughs> These aromas spread, right? And there is no stopping them. There's no way to contain them. And Paul says that the aroma that spreads from us every place is the knowledge of Christ. That the aroma that wafts out of us and spreads out is the knowledge of Christ. And what I want you to see is that's the way it works with the gospel. The gospel is meant, meant to go out from us and spread out from us in a way that it cannot be contained. And Paul says that through his proclamation and through his suffering, that's what's going on. That the aroma of Christ is going out and it is spreading to every place. Second thing I want you to notice about aromas is that they are invasive. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, manifest through us a sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other, other words, there's no escaping. There's no group of people that escape the smell, right? Everyone smells it, whether they are lost people or saved people. They smell the aroma of Christ coming from Paul as he preaches the gospel and as he suffers in the name of Jesus Christ. The two groups of people in the world, and there are only two, lost people and saved people, they all smell it. There is no avoiding these aromas. They are intrusive like a skunk, right? Like a skunk. We're going to talk about skunks a lot. If you're driving down the road and you smell a skunk, does that mean you're the only one in the car that smells a skunk? No. Everyone in the car is going to smell the skunk. There is no escaping the skunk, right? It is intrusive. I remember the worst skunk I've ever smelled. 
Um, I remember it vividly. I was going with a friend of mine in Mississippi up to the Mississippi Delta to hunt ducks, and we drove past the worst skunk in the world, and it just came in a truck, and it was terrible, and I said, oh, Patrick, that is the worst skunk I've ever smelled, and he said, yeah, and it tastes really bad, too. (laughs) It was so bad. It was so thick in that truck that he said, I can taste it, and it tastes really bad, right? It's intrusive, and that's the way The aroma of Christ works for us, from us. Not only does it go out and spread all over the place, everyone smells it. Everyone we're around smells it. There is no escaping it. It is absolutely intrusive. And then look what he says next. We are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, an aroma of death to death, and to another, an aroma from life to life. Paul says that these aromas, the aroma of Christ is provocative. I think that's the best word I can use in a positive sense. The word provocative in a negative sense means something else, but here it it, it elicits something from us. It provokes something in us that we don't respond with indifference to the smell, right? Just like a skunk, right? Is there anyone, I've met a few people in my life who actually kind of like and enjoy the smell of skunks. Anyone in here? Anyone in here like that? You wouldn't raise your hand, would you? Because I I had in my notes to call you a weirdo, right? (laughs) But there are people who like that, right? People who smell that and are like, man, I I don't think it's so bad. I kind of like it. That's odd, right? Maybe there are other smells. Gasoline may be a better example of this. Some people are just absolutely repulsed by the smell of gasoline. Other people are like, I kind of like it. kind of smells good. (laughs) The point is that this aroma, like every aroma we have, every aroma we are aware of, it brings about something in us. We say, that smells good or that smells bad, right? And that's the way it works with the aroma of Christ that comes out of us right, that comes out of us through our preaching of the gospel and through our suffering for the sake of Christ, that aroma comes out and some people are going to encounter it and they're going to say, that smells terrible. That smells terrible. And what you need to know is we were once all there. that's, That's who we all once were. We heard the preacher preach the gospel. We watched God's people live for Jesus. And we said, I don't want any part of that. Maybe it was because it was offensive to your pride to hear that you aren't good enough to please God. Maybe it was because it was offensive to your selfishness, your uh, hedonistic spirit, that he would say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Maybe, I don't know why, I don't know what it was for you, but at some point when you heard the gospel and you watched God's people live for him, you said, that stinks. If, that, if that's what you're offering, no thank you. Sometimes we smell something and it smells bad. And there are a group of people, some in this room today, who hear what we're talking about, about Jesus' death for our sins and His burial and His resurrection. We talk about submitting to His Lordship and following, following Him. We talk about believing in Him and repenting of our sins. We talk about going to the nations and potentially suffering for his sake. And they say, that doesn't smell very good. But you say those same things to some other folks, and they say, oh, man, it smells so good. 
It smells so good. It's like life that leads to life. It's so good. Hear people talk about Jesus dying on the cross. Oh, it smells so good. And you saw that a minute ago, and we were singing about it. We're singing about Jesus dying. We're singing about his crucifixion. We're talking about his death, and we sing it with a smile on our faces, right? That's weird. That is a weird, weird thing. To us who are being saved, it's the aroma of life that leads to life. For those who are perishing, it's the aroma of death that leads to death. But whatever, whoever you are, that aroma brings something out in you. That aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ brings something out in you, and it demands a response. Just like in the parade, the parade of triumph, those priests were waving the incense, and the local people, and the soldiers, and the general, and the citizens of that country smelled that aroma, and they said, Victory. Victory. We have conquered. We have won. This is a good day for us. And those guys at the end of the line, some of whom will become slaves, others of whom would meet their death in some gory fashion for all the world to see, they smelled that instance and they said, oh no, oh no, here it comes. And it's the same way with the gospel. It's the same way with us preaching the gospel and living our lives for Jesus. Some people are going to say, yes, go for it. Some people are going to say, that's right, quit it all and move to Africa and preach the gospel. Some people are going to say, this is the best thing and celebrate it. And other people are going to smell that and think, you are crazy, right? For some, it's the aroma of life that leads to life. And some, it's the aroma of death that leads to death. And it is the same smell. It is the same smell. It's just the perspective of those who are smelling it. And then he asks this in verse 17. Verse 16, part B, he says, And who is adequate for these things? If this is it, if we are the aroma of Christ, and we are called to follow him and preach the gospel and suffer for his name's sake, who's adequate for this? And he answers that in chapter 3, verse 5. Look what he says. In verse 4 he says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate to be the aroma? Paul says, I am. I want to say, you are. But not in yourself. Only in God. Only in Him. He gives you adequacy to be the aroma of Christ. For some, an aroma of life to life, and others, an aroma of death to death. And then in verse 17, he says this, For we are not like many peddling the word of God, But as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. I think this is more reason why when he talks about the parade of triumph, he's talking about suffering and not victory. Because he says, if if I was like the other guys looking for my own victory, looking to be at the front of that line and raise my hands in victory, I'd be peddling the word of God. I wouldn't be suffering the way I am. Paul says, but I don't peddle the word of God. I don't go and sell it to people. He says, I go and preach it to people at no expense. I go and preach it to people at great expense to myself. When he gets to this later on in 2 Corinthians and talks about the laundry list of his sufferings, that's all because he's preaching the gospel. And that teaches us that he's preaching it in sincerity. He's not poorly motivated in his preaching of the gospel. He is rightly motivated in his preaching of the gospel. Paul here, again, in the big picture of things in 2 Corinthians, is still defending his apostleship before these people. And part of his defense of his apostleship is that I suffer for this. If it wasn't real, if it wasn't of God, if it wasn't in the sight of God, I wouldn't suffer. I'd get rich off of preaching the word of God. But he says it's legit because of the suffering that he experiences. 
Today, I've got three applications, and they're just three words. Number one is preach. Number two is suffer. And number three is smell, right? Preach, suffer, and smell. Preach is like this. Paul went to Troas to meet Titus to hear about Corinth. He was on a mission to gather information. And as he was going, he preached the gospel. You are going somewhere when we leave here, right? Where are you going? Kentucky Fried Chicken? McDonald's? So many of you go to McDonald's. You're going somewhere. Tomorrow, where are you going? Are you going to school or are you going to work? And what are you going to do? You're going to calculate numbers, right? You're going to do people's taxes. You're going to teach kids math, right? You're going to do all of these things. And as you're going to do that, preach the gospel. That's what the Great Commission looks like. I'll give you an example and an opportunity to do this tonight. At 6 o'clock at Taylor Field, we're going to have a bonfire. I want you to come to the bonfire. I want you to come to the bonfire and eat a hot dog. I want you to come to the bonfire and eat a s'more or five or six s'mores. I want you to come to the bonfire and listen to our band play some music. I want you to come to the bonfire and just sit around and chat with some friends. And as you're doing all of that, preach the gospel. As you're doing all of that, tell people about Jesus. Does that make sense? That's what it looks like to follow after Jesus. That's what it looks like to be a preacher. Not to stand up on a platform once a week and give a talk, but as you are going, make disciples. As you are going, preach the gospel. Preach, preach all the time, no matter what you're doing. And we do that with words. We have to speak the truths of Jesus Christ, and we do it with deeds. We live it. Both of those things are extremely important. Don't do one without the other. So preach. Number two, suffer. Paul suffered greatly because of his identification with Christ. The question is, are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to embrace suffering as a way that Jesus makes much of himself? Are you willing to be the guy in the back of the line so that Jesus, as the conquering general, gets all the glory at the end of the day? I think a lot of us are unwilling to do that. I think a lot of us only want to be on the chariot with Jesus. Now hear me clearly, that day will come. For all of us who know him, that day will come when we are with him in glory. But I think that day is coming. (laughs) I don't think that's the way it works now. I think it's more like Jesus has conquered us. We are at the back of the line. We suffer. We serve him. We die for him. And he gets all of the glory for it. Are you willing to embrace suffering if it means that Jesus is glorified? And I've watched some of you do that. Suffering that you haven't asked for, some suffering that you haven't volunteered for, but suffering that came to you and you embraced it as a way to make much of Jesus. And it's good to see. And I want you to know that the world listens carefully. The world listens carefully when we testify through our suffering. I think also when we talk about suffering, we must not only talk about our willingness to suffer, but we must talk about the reality of suffering that's happening right now. We talked about this Wednesday night. You know that we have brothers and sisters around the globe that are suffering greatly right now, right? I read not too long ago that there is more persecution of the church happening today than at any other point in the history of the church. We Americans seem to think that all 
Persecution isn't really happening. Persecution is on the, on the decline. Not too many people are being killed for their faith. Not too many people are, are being cast out of their villages for their faith. I want you to hear, yes, they are. Yes, they are. There are brothers and sisters of ours who look differently than us and speak differently than us, but are brothers and sisters under the same Father who are being persecuted like crazy right now. Suffering. Clearly, in the back of the line, in the back of the parade of triumph, all for the glory of Christ. And you know what's interesting? In those areas, in those areas of the world where persecution is most severe, church growth is also most explosive. It's unbelievable that in the places where people are trying to kill believers, the gospel's spreading like crazy. The opposite of that is also true. In places where it's very easy to be a Christian, like here, the church is growing very slowly. Or, in a lot of cases, on decline. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters. Pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. We pray for them, we learn from them, we support them in every way that we can. I think the other application is we need to take advantage, so to speak, of the ease here. It is easy to preach the gospel here. No one's going to kill you here. So go preach it. Go tell people about Jesus. No one's going to hate you for it. They may say, ah, it stinks. Smells like the aroma of death to me, but they won't lock you up. And when they say it smells like death, you say, okay, what's it smell like to you? What's it smell like to you? What's it smell like to you? Go preach the gospel and be willing to suffer. Preach, suffer, and smell. The question here is, how does the aroma of Christ, delivered through the preaching and suffering of his servants, how does it smell to you? How does the gospel smell to you? I hope you would say, oh, it smells good. It's better than mom's apple pie. That's a good smell, right? Ah, better than my wife's perfume. That's a good smell, right? The aroma of Christ, the preaching of the gospel, the suffering of his people. Oh, I hope that smells good to you. But for some of you, you say, this is crazy talk. Crazy talk to speak positively about the suffering of an innocent person. Crazy talk to say, give your life for the sake of Christ. Crazy talk that I need Jesus. That smells bad. I want you to know if that's where you're at today, I was there. Everyone in this room who now says it smells good once said it smelled bad. In fact, Paul says this same thing to Corinth at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Listen to what he says. For the word of, cro of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, right? To some people it stinks, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says, yeah, for some people it's foolishness, for some people it's folly, for some people it stinks, but... 
For those who are being saved, it's wisdom. For those who are being saved, it's power. For those who are being saved, it is a sweet aroma. The question is, what does it smell like for you? Maybe today. Maybe today it's starting to change. Maybe today you smell it. And last week, it repulsed you. Last week, it made you sick. But this week, you're kind of like, maybe that's not so bad. Man, that kind of smells good. My encouragement to you is, go after it. (laughs) Go find the source of the smell. Run to it. Savor it. Enjoy it. The bottom line is, call out to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Repent of your sins and believe in him. Know that he died for you. And know that he's the only one who can save you. Let's stand together and pray. God, I pray today that you will give a new perspective to many in this room. Many in this room hear the gospel and the word of the cross. They hear the proclamation of your people. They see the suffering of your saints. And they're repulsed. They think it's foolish. They think it's weak. They think it stinks. God, my prayer is not that you'll change the message to satisfy them. My prayer is that you will change them to appreciate the message, to savor the message. I pray, God, that you will give a new perspective to lost people in this room. God, that they will, by your grace, by your grace, that they will hear of Christ's death for them and his resurrection, that they will hear his demand to follow him, to leave everything and follow him, that they will hear that, see it as power and life and hope and satisfaction, and they will run to you. God, I pray that men and women and boys and girls in this room would respond to the message of the gospel today with repentance, turning away from the old, and faith, turning toward you and trust and dependence completely on you. God, my prayer is that you will give new perspective to so many in this room. And God, I pray for your people, those who already know you. God, help us to savor that smell of the gospel. Help us to enjoy it. Help us to respond to it. God, help us to appreciate and love the message of the gospel and the service of your people. And God, help us not just to savor it and enjoy it, but to respond by preaching, by telling everyone as we are going about the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to respond by being willing to embrace suffering when it comes as a mechanism for you to be glorified as the conquering general. God, I pray that you help your people to respond rightly to the aroma of Christ, life to life. Help us do that now. For some, change their perspective. To others, help us appreciate and savor the smell. All for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.